Let's open the Scriptures together to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53. As mentioned in the prayer, the subject matter of the preaching will be the justice and mercy of God. As Scripture teaches us that and as we have that summarized in the Belgic Confession, Article 20. So just pay attention here in Isaiah 53 to the idea of justice and the idea of mercy. The Word of God at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And the him here is the future Messiah, our Lord Jesus. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 507, where we find the Word of God summarized by the church in Article 20 of the Belgic Confession on the topic of the justice and mercy of God in Christ. Article 20, we believe that God who is perfectly merciful and just, sent his son to assume that nature in which disobedience had been committed 
to make satisfaction in that same nature and to bear the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. God therefore manifested his justice against his Son when he laid our iniquity on him and poured out his goodness and mercy on us who were guilty and worthy of damnation. Out of a most perfect love, he gave his Son to die for us, and he raised him for our justification, that through him we might obtain immortality and life eternal. That's as far as the Belgic Confession will take us this afternoon. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been looking at the Belgic Confession for some time now, having covered the first 19 articles. And you might recall that this confession was written in the middle of the Great Reformation of the 16th century. Its author was Guido de Bray, and the church, along with Guido de Bray, sets out here the truth of God's Word over against errors that were circulating prominently in those days. There were the errors of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church on the one side, and then there were the errors of the Anabaptists on the other side. Those errors still exist today, so the confession remains relevant on those points. The confession has been leading up to something through those first 19 articles. It's been leading up to the, the great saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, in Article 20, we come to the heart of it. We're right here at the soul of, of the entire Reformation. Everything that the Reformation was driving at, we're, we're now coming to hit the bullseye. It's the very lifeblood, you could say, of the gospel for which Luther fought so valiantly for which Zwingli and Butzer stood tall, and for which John Calvin also gave his life over to serve. So from Articles 20 all the way through 23, the Belgic Confession, it lays out the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Even as we saw that this morning out of John 6, everything is centered, it's fixed on Christ the main error that is combated in these articles was in those days and still is today that of the Roman Catholic teaching which added good works into the mix. Rome taught people to constantly wonder and worry whether their good works and obedience to God, whether they were enough to satisfy God and then open for them the entry into heaven. Rome teaches that God's justice demands from us not only faith in Jesus, but also works in order for us to find mercy from God. But the Scriptures teach something different. And our confession in Article 20 echoes that teaching very simply. God's justice and God's mercy, they fully meet and are fully given to us in one place, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I preach to you this word of the Lord, justice and mercy meet perfectly in Christ's cross. We'll take a look at an old promise that's been kept 
and a newer promise that has been sealed. One of the main struggles of the Reformation was the question, who is responsible for salvation? Who, who brings it about? Who sets people free from their sin? Is that man's work? Do we have to do that? Is it God's work? Or maybe is it some combination of God and man? Well, it's this last idea that Rome had been teaching for centuries in which uh, about 50 years after the Belgic Confession was written, the Arminians would bring up and the issue would be tackled again at the Synod of Dort. They thought that there was a combination, God and man, man and God. But now I invite you to look at the opening sentences of Article 20, 21 and 22 and look at the subject. Article 20, we believe that God, who is perfectly just and merciful and just, sent His Son to assume that nature. The subject in Article 20 is God, meaning God the Father who sent His Son. Look at Article 21. We believe that Jesus Christ was confirmed by an oath to be a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The subject now is God the Son. And in Article 22, the thread is completed. We believe that in order that we may obtain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in us a true faith. The one doing the action there is God, the Holy Spirit. As the church then begins to confess that the very center of our faith, the, the how and the why we are saved, the church, and we with the, the believers of the past, we want to be crystal clear that our salvation, it's entirely of God. It's not a combination effort. It comes to us, salvation comes from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do not save ourselves. It's God who comes and saves us from the start to the finish. It's God who plans our salvation. It's God who enters into human flesh to become our Savior, and it's even God who enters into our human hearts through the Spirit to bring us to faith, to bring us to salvation. This is very much all part of the good news, brothers and sisters. Salvation is not a work we do. It's a work done for us. It's a work done in us. God is unstoppable and unvincible in that work. Let me hasten to add that doesn't mean we sit idly by. We're not sitting on our hands doing nothing, but it does mean that our involvement in this process is not in the role of partial Savior, but it's in the role of, be, of being people who are saved by God alone, people who have been raised to life by God alone, to live now for God alone. We'll be coming back to this point in Article 24, the Lord willing, but here in Article 20, the focus is on the work of God the Father. Article 20 begins by taking a step back and surveying what we've learned so far in our confession. We believe that God, who is perfectly merciful and just, sent His Son to assume that nature in which disobedience had been committed to make satisfaction in that same nature. So the Belgic earlier used this expression, merciful and just, back in Article 16. 
There it spoke of God's plan of election. And when Article 20 now speaks of that nature, it's referring to the true human nature of Adam taken on from the Virgin Mary by Christ as we dealt with that in Articles 18 and 19. So that's the summary portion of the first sentence of Article 20. And then comes the new bit, to make satisfaction in that same nature. To bear the punishment of sin by his most bitter passion and death. That's the new part. Article 20 is looking at this now from the perspective, you could say, of God the Father. How he sent his Son to make satisfaction. The sending of God's Son was not itself the goal. The incarnation, Christmas, was not itself the end goal, as important and critical a miracle of grace as it is, but it serves that greater purpose, God's intention to make satisfaction through his very own Son's death. And I just want to highlight again that the subject of all of this is God the Father. Of course, it's Jesus, God the Son, who makes the sacrifice, but it's the Father who commissions the Son. It's the Father who sends Jesus. It's the Father who appoints Him and anoints Him for His task. The idea of satisfaction is the Father's idea. It's His initiative, not the Son's per se. And I, I stress this for a moment because there are some people who think that there's quite a difference between the attitude of God the Son and the attitude of God the Father, and they kind of think that they are almost working against each other sometimes. Some people look at God as revealed in the Old Testament and they think that what they see there on the pages of the Old Testament is an angry God. The God is always blasting His people for their faults. That God, they think, is filled with wrath because of human sin, and He's got nothing but a position of anger toward them. But what Jesus does is He comes along to persuade His Father to turn away His wrath from the people. Jesus is then pictured as the God of love who overcomes the harshness of his Father's anger and causes the Father to then look upon us in his love. And that way of looking at Father and Son exalts Jesus as, as the mighty Savior who stood up for us, but it kind of puts the Father down to a second-rate divine person who somehow has less grace toward us than the Son. But brothers and sisters, the Belgian Confession gets it biblically right. Satisfaction is the Father's idea, and it's the Father's plan. We read it in Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's the servant, the future Messiah. The Lord has put him to grief to make his soul an offering for guilt. It was the Lord's will. Lord meaning Yahweh, and when Yahweh is distinguished from the Messiah, then Yahweh there is God the Father. It's God the Father who commissioned His Son. Of course, the Son wanted this. There's no competition. But the one who sets it all in motion is God the Father. 
So the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. There is no difference in character. Father, Son, and Spirit were all equally grieved by man's sin, and from the get-go, all three persons of the Trinity were of one mind to address the great need of their people. Well, what need is that exactly? The confession uses a word that we might not be so familiar with. It's the word satisfaction. Satisfaction for what exactly? I think we understand the idea of being satisfied. We can use that word in different ways with different meanings. If you are thirsty on a hot day like today, then a cold drink of water may satisfy your thirst. If you're hungry, then a, a warm meal could satisfy your hunger. If you are lonely, then finding a friend could satisfy your desire, your need for companionship. If something requires satisfaction then, then by implication there is some desire, there's some need that has to be met. So the question is, what satisfaction was God looking for from us? What was and is our great need? Well, quite simply, we needed, we were required to satisfy the requirements of God's law, or you could say God's justice. Whenever God gives His word, a promise, a commitment, He always, always keeps it. That's the character of God. That's what makes Him just. He never reneges on a promise or a commitment. He never lies. He never undoes it. Article 20 emphasizes that God is perfectly just in its opening sentence, and then it stresses the same in the second sentence. God, therefore, manifested His justice against His Son. And if you ask, well, what word of God do we need to satisfy? What promise did God make to us that He cannot backtrack on? Then we have to go back in our minds all the way to Genesis 2 when the Lord had created man and put him in the Garden of Eden and gave him this charge, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. And here comes the, the promise, the threat, basically a negative promise, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was God's word. This was God's commitment to Adam. If you disobey me, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So the justice of God requires that to happen. Man has to die. As Paul writes to the Romans, the wages of sin is death. Man has to die. God can't renege on that. You know, we humans might have reneged on that if we had been the ones to say such a thing. We might have not followed through. We might have chosen to say, ah, we'll just let that pass. Because you and I, we are not perfectly just. But God is. Every word He speaks, He takes seriously. None of His promises fall to the ground. None of the promised blessings will fall to the ground. And none of the 
given curses. And it's because of that that someone somehow has to die. As the Belgic describes it, to satisfy God's justice, some human in some way had to bear the punishment for sin for the rest of the human race. Punishment, satisfaction, justice, these are all legal terms which mean that man must pay for his sin. Death has to come, and man must satisfy it. And man did satisfy it in Jesus Christ. Or better said, God satisfied on man's behalf. He did that by becoming a man himself. God the Father sent God the Son to take on our human nature, the same nature which had rebelled, and to stand as our legal substitute to endure the punishment of death for us. So when God sent His Son out, He was setting out to make satisfaction to fulfill His own justice in keeping that old ancient promise. So you see, the cross of Jesus is a place of pure justice. That's where God's justice was satisfied. Well, that tells us how seriously God takes sin, doesn't it? And we should maybe reflect on that. Do we take sin as seriously as God does? I think it's very easy for us to kind of think lightly about sin, our own sins especially, our own personal wrongs. It's not natural for us to spend time analyzing our desires and pull apart our motives and scrutinize our thoughts, words, and actions to see whether we are letting sin live in our lives unchecked. Can we take a minute and do that? Not just today, but every day. Do we let ourselves off the hook with a wink and a shrug and say, hey, that's, that's life. I'm a sinner like the rest. That's the way it is. We should not fool ourselves into thinking that God doesn't sweat the small sins or that God will be so quick to forgive everything I do when I just casually ask Him at the end of the day as if it's not a big deal. Let's, let me think of some examples with you. God has commanded me to honor and obey all authority. What does God think then when I disrespect my parents, when I ignore the office bearers or badmouth the teacher? God has commanded me to honor His name, right? Don't take His name in vain. What does God think when I, I choose to entertain myself with stories or movies which indulge in the very sins which God sent His Son to die for? God has commanded me to give of my talents and abilities in order to help my brothers and sisters in Christ. Is the Lord happy when I just keep to myself and never involve myself in the body of Christ? God has also instructed me to keep myself sexually pure. Will the Lord look the other way when I download porn, 
or masturbate or have sex outside of marriage. God can't look the other way because he's perfectly just. And the proof is how he put his very own son through a world of rejection and torture and agony in order to pay the price for each of those sins and all of our sins. To God, sin is weighty, it's heavy, it, it's costly, it cost him his only son. He can't possibly ignore it or those who think little of it. So let us, let us ponder that deeply. Justice came at an awful price, but so did mercy. For the great news is, as much as God is perfectly just, He's also perfectly merciful. Those attributes of God can never be played off against each other. Remember back in Article 1 of the Belgic, we confess there that God is a simple being. That means, the word simple in that context means the opposite of complex. God is not made up of parts. God is one. God is whole. God is complete. So that there can be no competition within Himself, let alone any contradiction within Himself. So God is love, but God is also holy. God is a God of justice, but equally He is a God of mercy. And nowhere do those two attributes meet so clearly, and you could even say they kiss each other so clearly and so beautifully as in the cross of our Lord Jesus. Mercy comes out in what the Confession, Article 20, alludes to, when it, when it sort of alludes to Isaiah 53, what we read, God therefore manifested His justice against His Son when He laid our iniquity on Him and poured out His goodness and mercy on us who were guilty and worthy of damnation. So the justice is fully there, right? God laid on man the penalty for man's sin. God emptied His wrath upon our legal representative fulfilling that ancient promise of Genesis 2, but then comes the mercy. God laid our iniquity not on you and me personally. He laid it on His Son, on Jesus. We're the guilty ones. We're the ones worthy of damnation. We had committed rebellion in the first Adam, but God chooses to punish the last Adam and not ourselves. Isaiah pictures it in that chapter we read so very graphically. Surely He, speaking of the Messiah, He has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. We all like sheep have gone astray, says Isaiah. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's mercy and justice. Right there on Golgotha's tree, in the crucifixion of Christ, we see both the, mercy, the, the justice of God poured out and the full mercy of God on display God doesn't back down one inch 
in his perfect justice, but then that gives him only more opportunity to show his perfect and wondrous mercy. And that mercy was the result of another promise, which came after the first promise, that first promise to put man to death if he should rebel. Because after the Genesis 2 promise comes the Genesis 3 promise, where, yes, man did rebel, man did plunge himself into sin, but God comes there in Genesis 3 with a new promise. The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. That was the unexpected promise that was born out of God's mercy. And what is mercy? Mercy is getting the opposite of what we deserve. Mercy is release from punishment when in fact we've done nothing to earn it. Mercy is being told you're free when in fact we are guilty of the crime. The fact is God had no obligation to come into the Garden of Eden to say to our first parents, I'm going to send a child one day who will make you free forever from the grip of Satan, who will set you free from the very rebellion you've committed against me. When God said those things in the garden, that was mercy talking. That was mercy promising. Only this promise did not depend on the effort or actions of mankind like the first one did. No, God, God would take care of this promise all by himself. The Lord made a commitment to send a Savior, and that Savior was sent. God made a promise to crush the serpent, and the serpent was crushed. God made a vow to ensure a future for His people, and there, uh, in that future there would be no Satan, there would be no sin, and that promise was sealed to us. It was guaranteed to us in the blood of Jesus on the cross of Golgotha. On that old, rugged cross. The first promise of Genesis 2 and the newer promise of Genesis 3, they were completely fulfilled. Justice was done by putting a man to death, but mercy was extended by putting to death one man as substitute for all, a man who himself had no sin, who himself was also God, who had all power. Satan has been crushed under Jesus' foot because Satan's only hold over us was our guilt before God. And that guilt has been removed. That guilt has been satisfied before the Almighty. So there's no more debt owing. Satan has no more leverage. He can't go to God the Father and start accusing us of our sins because the Father will say, uh, my son has paid for that. Our Savior will stand up and say, I've covered that myself on the cross. God once made a new promise out of His incredible mercy. And God always works to keep His promises because He's a God of justice. Justice means I'm a promise keeper, a word keeper. Can you feel in all of that, brothers and sisters, the, the security, the safety, the confidence of this truth 
for yourself. The Roman Catholic religion, on the one hand, and the Arminian evangelicals, they put salvation, they, they rested on the shoulder of man, saying that man has to seal the deal <coughs> by combining our act of faith together with our obedience, and then we can be saved. But that's a risky venture, isn't it? That's a fool's errand, really, a futile thing to try because salvation would then never be sure. It wouldn't be sure because you and I and every human, we are weak. How often don't we break our word? How often don't we go back on our promises? And which of us can feel content to appear before the judgment seat of God Almighty with, with a list of our good works and, and say to God, well, Lord, look at all these good works. You should find these quite acceptable. Here you go. Do we not know that our sins and failings would mount up like Mount Everest and our good works would be this high and even those good works have corruption in them? The Roman Catholics feel this uncertainty, which is why they came up with the idea of purgatory, the idea that you can pay off your sins after you die. Rome may not sell indulgences anymore, which they used to do, but with their insistence on holy rosaries and penance and confessionals and doing exceptional good deeds, they're still teaching people to pay for their own sins and those of their loved ones. For the Roman Catholics, theirs is a religion of transaction. I do this for God, God does this for me. But the religion of Scripture, the covenant bond we have with our God, the relationship we have with God, is not a transaction. Ours is a religion of grace. It's one way, God's pure grace toward helpless sinners like us. And when you consider that Jesus stood before the judgment seat of God for us on our behalf, and He was condemned there for us, and He died for us, and later was raised to life for us, He did it all. What then is there left to doubt? When you consider that His life was a sinless life, all His works his obedience was spotless, his sacrifice as white as snow. What question marks are left? The deal is sealed. The justice of God has been satisfied. And when you recall that God is a promise keeper who takes his word so seriously that he put his own son to death in order to validate his commitment can there be any doubt that this same God will keep His promise to forgive all your sins and mine? To all who put their trust in His Son and bring them then to live with Him in glory, is there going to be any doubt when you look at the cross? Be secure, brothers and sisters. You are safe in your faith in Christ. 
justice and mercy, it brought Jesus to the cross. And now mercy and justice bring us to the cross by faith. Mercy, it extends forgiveness undeserved. Justice sees to it that the mercy will be received by every single person chosen by the Father. We hope to see that more clearly next week, Sunday morning. Justice on Golgotha, that was costly. It was the most expensive. Now to everybody who trusts in Christ crucified, the salvation that is received, that is priceless. Amen.